everyone, and welcome to Securityscape, your monthly podcast about current research and events in security and strategic studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, February 20th, 2023, for our episode on security in Latin America. This is a two-part episode in collaboration with the Rethinking Latin American Studies from the South Working Group, RLS. The conversation will start here at Securityscape and continue at the RLS podcast. I am your producer, Clever Soroka, a master's student at the Center for Military, Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. My research is related to militarization in Brazil and Argentina. And that's why I'm so glad to have as our guest today, Dr. Pablo Polixer. He's an associate professor at the Department of Political Science and a fellow at the Center for Military, Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. He's a specialist in comparative politics with a focus on Latin America. He He held the Canada Research Chair in Latin American Politics between 2005 and 2015, directed the Latin America Research Center between 2015 and 2020, and is a co-founder of the Rethinking Latin American Studies from the South Working Group. His research has focused on the evolution of violent conflict in authoritarian and democratic regimes, especially among armored actors such as military, police forces, and non-state armored groups. Thank you so much for joining this episode of Security Escape. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Starting from the beginning, there is a difference between the dominant perspective about security issues and how Latin America perceives and defines it. Can we introduce it to our listeners who may not be familiar with this? So one of the key things to keep in mind about Latin America is that by contrast to other parts of the world, there are no interstate wars. Uh, the region is largely peaceful from that perspective. Uh, there, uh, For example, today the Ukraine conflict uh, draws a lot of headlines, but that kind of interstate uh, war is thankfully absent from the region. Now, having said that, the region has the very dubious distinction of otherwise being the most violent place on the planet. But that kind of violence involves a whole range of Uh, different sorts of security challenges, especially uh, criminal violence. Uh, and more people are killed as a consequence of criminal violence in Latin America than as a consequence of uh, political warfare, uh, interstate or civil wars in Africa, uh, arguably the next most violent region in the world. So that uh, sh shift from, let's say, the standard classic national security approaches that um, really emerge in the context of uh, sovereignty and military conflict and interstate conflict is really quite different in Latin America. So considering the history of military regimes in the region, uh, and here we can talk about Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Uruguay, for example, and how is the relationship between politics and the armed force in Latin America? Like, what is the role of the military in these quite recently established democracies? Sure. The, uh, maybe the way to approach that question is that in the absence of interstate warfare, The militaries have, in many ways, uh, looked for different sorts of missions. And one of uh, the key questions that is in front of policymakers, certainly armed forces and police forces, is how to or whether to use the armed forces 
to deal with the current security crisis in the form that manifests largely in the form of criminal violence. There are some uh, differences here, so there's some variations. A case like Colombia, for example, is a very complex case where, as you know, there's a long-standing, decades-old um, history of uh, civil war that has uh, had its ups and downs, uh, hopefully, uh, in the aftermath of a peace accord that was signed a few years ago. That is, that uh, period of intense violence has receded or is receding. And the military was certainly a major part of the Colombian state's response to that uh, civil war. But uh, even there, um, the difference between political and criminal violence is very complex and very messy. But in other places, uh, such as Brazil or uh, Mexico uh, or elsewhere, where the prevalence is really more of criminal violence, there's been really intense debates over whether to use the military um, in support of the police force's actions against the criminal violence. Of course, criminality is something that the police are normally trained to respond to. That's their role. The military is not supposed to get involved in criminal actions. But because police forces have been so often so uh, poor at responding to uh, uh, criminal threats and uh, problems of criminal insecurity. The military throughout uh, the region, and as you know from your own country, Brazil, have been called upon to respond to um, these problems, sometimes working in collaboration with the police forces, sometimes taking the place of police forces. And uh, those debates are ongoing in, in many parts of the region, and they're very central to the kinds of issues of, of security problems that uh, Latin American policymakers face. There is a difference between militarism and militarization. Um, can you explain this difference to us, especially what these phenomena are in Latin America and if they differ from other parts of the world? Can you say a bit more about what you mean by, by, by that difference, what you have in mind or maybe a particular case? The militarism, this idea of honoring the military and having this pride about military, and then the militarization when this military is starting to occupy space in civil society. Historically, there's a long tradition of relying on the military in many ways uh, throughout, uh, so by Latin American states giving the military pride of place uh, in all kinds of um, areas. One of the key differences between the way in which the Latin American republics were structured uh, after independence in the early part of the 19th century and the way in which a country like the United States was structured, because otherwise uh, many Latin American countries structured their constitutions in, in largely as a, a mirroring what the United States has had done. So as uh, the republics, with as presidential republics, with a clear separation of powers, uh, very different from uh, the way that a, a parliamentary democracy uh, like Canada is structured. So while the Latin American republics copied the American uh, model in all kinds of ways, there was one key difference in that uh, they gave the armed forces a much, much greater role um, in a constitutionally uh, mandated role uh, very often as guarantors 
of uh, sovereignty, as guarantors of national security, and as guarantors of the constitutional order. So that uh, reliance on the military for political stability is something that goes back to the colonial periods, uh, the Bourbon uh, reforms in the 18th century, um, tried to really strengthen the control of uh, the empire on the colonies in many ways by giving the military, by relying on the military and giving the military all sorts of special rights and privileges. And so that idea of relying on the military is something that carries over into the independence period. And Latin America's had a long history of military intervention in politics. So the this has meant that in many countries, um, and it's hard to generalize because there's also some, some, uh, some big difference of important uh, exceptions and differences, but uh, in many countries, the military are a very important part of national identity and celebrated as such. In my own country, in Chile, you know, that is certainly uh, the case. But there's also some really interesting and important exceptions. Uh, Costa Rica comes to mind that in the middle of the 20th century decided to abolish the military after a, a civil war, uh, that um, uh, resulted in, in a democratic government where the, the Costa Ricans decided to abolish the, the military. There are important differences, but um, in, I would say that so that kind of the role that the military has played in politics is one thing, but what you're referring to is also this tension that I was, ref I think, uh, that I was pointing to before, which is this idea of whether to use the police forces or the military to deal with the current security problems, uh, particularly this question of criminality. And sometimes the, so the, the way in which those debates manifest themselves um, occur because uh, people have, and again, it's, it's difficult to generalize because there's lots of variation, but uh, because the military is often, the armed forces are seen as less corrupt and more reliable than the police forces, um, in part because of that long uh, tradition of respect for and adoration of the military, uh, which is a very different sort of tradition than in, in Canada, for example. Um, and But also in part because the police forces just have a different structure uh, where they're closer to uh, operations on the ground, to the street level, and uh, that um, uh, and they don't have the, the same kind of hierarchical command and control that the military does, and so they're more prone to, the, to this sort of corruption. So uh, now, having said that, of course, there's a, a long history of, and I don't have to tell uh, you as a Brazilian or as a Chilean also know this history well of the military involvement in politics and all the um, terrible atrocities that that has uh, brought about. So it's a fraught uh, um, legacy. Quite recently in Brazil, actually, Considering everything we talked here, what do you think that are the main security challenges in the region today? Well, the big one, again, is this question of uh, criminality. And this is a really fraught and complex problem because of a number of things. One is that it's very difficult to draw a clear line between, for example, the public sector, the state, uh, and, or society on the one hand, and the bad guys, the criminals on the other. That uh, there's a, a lot of work that uh, people have done to document the ways in which networks of criminal influence cut across the state and society line, and including 
that cut across, it, that, that reach into the political sector, um, including at the very highest levels in different places. That's certainly the case in countries like uh, Colombia, historically, Mexico, Brazil, and elsewhere. Now, the other way in which uh, this is a real challenge, some of the things that people are contending with, is that there's been debates over whether to use really tough on crime sorts of policies in Spanish or Portuguese as mano dura sorts of policies of being very aggressive and forceful with uh, regards to the criminals or uh, to use softer sorts of approaches. Now, one case that is really um, significant to watch right now is El Salvador, where the current president, Bukele, has huge popularity. The recent rankings, I mean, it's been fascinating, somewhat disturbing to watch, that um, the best-ranked, uh, most popular presidents in Latin America, Bukele is way out on top, who's 80% or something, I don't remember the exact figures, but it's an astoundingly high figure. And he came to power on a promise to deal with the criminal, the gang problem, in a very tough way. So without regard to human rights, uh, to the rule of law, uh, simply to uh, take a very tough on crime, mano dura uh, type of approach. And so these policies are very popular, um, as reflected in Bukele's uh, high approval rating, but they are very damaging to the rule of law, which is a fundamental pillar of democratic governance. And so this is a really concerning, problematic uh, situation in the region right now. And what's going on in El Salvador is consistent with what is happening in a number of other places. So these tough-on-crime policies, for example, are part of a long-standing debate in a place like the United States and elsewhere. Um, the Philippines, where Rodrigo Duterte is the Philippine equivalent to, to Bukele, is also another case, and uh, elsewhere. So this is a, a really key concern, uh, I think, is, is how the popularity of breaking the law, of, being, of not respecting the rule of law to deal with the insecurity problems can pose real uh, problems for democratic governance. Now, there's other uh, kinds of policies or approaches that uh, have been tried. Uh, again, in El Salvador, Bukele came to power in the aftermath of a steep rise in uh, insecurity and the problem of gangs, gang violence. But other, uh, other policies, other approaches, softer kinds of approaches have been tried. Um, in recent years, uh, for instance, the previous Secretary General of the Organization of American States, uh, the Chilean, uh, Jose Miguel Insulza, had tried to uh, collaborate with the Catholic Church to structure a to, uh, process of dialogue, a truce between the two top gangs. Secretary General Insulza took a real political risk by going to El Salvador. He was invited by civil society organizations and the Catholic Church and uh, went into the jails to uh, talk to the top gang leaders, which is really quite an amazing thing for a top international official like uh, Insulza to do. And 
it took a lot of political courage to do that. And that process led to a, uh, had some initial signs that it would be succeeding, and then it, the truce uh, fell apart and politically it became very controversial. And the, that controversy was part of the context that uh, resulted in the election of a very different kind of political leader who came to power saying that, you know, we cannot talk to these, uh, these armed actors. What we need to do is just use a, a great deal of uh, power, of aggressive force against them. Um, so notwithstanding the fact that these dialogue efforts are incredibly uh, risky and they don't have a guarantee of success, they remain a really fundamental um, tool that policymakers need to keep in mind. Um, in Colombia, for instance, uh, there's also been a long history of uh, going back and forth between um, simply uh, dealing with the insurgency, the FARC insurgency, and there were uh, there's some other groups in Colombia as well, through a very tough military approach versus also exploring efforts to engage in dialogue processes. A lot of times the dialogue processes don't work, but uh, Colombia is an interesting example where force has been used, and there have been many dialogue efforts that have been tried. Some of them have failed. Force has also been used, and force has also not led to the end of the conflict. But eventually there was a process, a peace process between the FARC guerrillas and the Colombian government that did result in a peace agreement, which was politically uh, contentious because it was rejected in the plebiscite in 2016. These things are very difficult at best, but, uh, uh, the, but making progress by using the, a variety of different tools, not just force, but also dialogue, is part of what Latin Americans are contending with. And the other thing that I would say about this is that because of the complexity of the security challenges in Latin America, uh, people in different parts of the region, uh, Colombia comes to mind, Brazil definitely comes to mind, have developed a great deal of expertise uh, in analyzing these different um, conflicts, these different uh, challenges, and they've produced some incredibly sophisticated uh, research, data, analysis, uh, policy proposals to manage these things. And uh, we should be uh, not simply speculating from our perspective here in the North about what to do, but also learning from them uh, who are some of the world's leading experts on these uh, challenges. There's a great deal of expertise there. Okay, to end this first part of our conversation, is there anything that you'd like to plug in about uh, to our listeners interested in Latin American books, authors, maybe events? I would say that um, one of the groups of people that have been doing really terrific work in Colombia is, um, so for example, people associated with the um, Instituto de Estudios Políticos y Relaciones Internacionales, the IEPRI, at the Universidad Nacional, um, who have developed, uh, have long-standing expertise in studying violent conflict, and they've collaborated with uh, people in uh, Yale University, 
the big name uh, at Yale, who's one of the leading experts on uh, security issues uh, broadly in the questions of politics and violence, uh, Stathis Kalivas, who's now at uh, Oxford University, and he's done a lot of work with Colombian uh, colleagues, Juana Arjona, uh, Francisco Gutierrez Sanin, uh, done just brilliant, brilliant work. And part of what they've, they've argued um, correctly, in my view, is that the problem of violence and the problem of peace are deeply connected. And maybe a better way to put that is simply that politics in peaceful times is not disconnected from politics in violent times. That um, the questions of uh, order and violence uh, go together. So in Canada, for instance, we're used to, or political scientists are used to um, analyzing politics in peaceful times. Things are orderly and peaceful, and there's political contestation and conflict and disagreement and so on, but it's thankfully a peaceful country. And uh, those who study politics in that relatively peaceful context are not used to thinking about, violent, about politics during times of violence. But uh, the Colombians and many others have correctly pointed out that this is a mistake, that, that uh, politics in peaceful times and politics in violent times are really different versions of the same thing. They're deeply connected. And uh, there's a lot of great literature out there, like some of the people that I mentioned. And also about events, I think that next month uh, we'll have the RLS Symposium, right? Exactly, and uh, so I look uh, forward. The, look forward to uh, learning from graduate students. is always a fantastic um, opportunity to hear from graduate students and to learn from graduate students uh, about some cutting edge issues. The our last uh, symposium has been uh, really successful in the past, and I look forward to an equally successful. Uh, event uh, this year as well. Uh, certainly will be that way uh, with uh, the brilliant group of students uh, who we have um, around us. So I really look forward to that. Me too, me too. Thank you so much, Dr. Polizer, for your time and the great conversation. To our listeners who are interested in Latin American security, this conversation will continue at the RLS podcast. You can find them at RLS. R-L-A-S-S, Laura-U-Calgary at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This was Securityscape, your monthly podcast about security and strategic studies. Please follow us at Securityscape on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for new episodes every third Monday of the month. Special thanks to our producers Tamara Manalaki and Thomas Daves, our editor Queen Hawk and the CDSN Podcast Network, and also the RLS members Hector Tour and Jaime Pais. Thank you for listening and see you next time. That was Security Escape.